what is non-negotiable for you? Um, I don't know, maybe you've never thought about these things for yourself, but if you're married, you probably know what these things are for your spouse. Sometimes it's easier to see in other people. Uh, in our house, there's a couple of things, obviously, um, with my spouse. Uh, I just, this is non-negotiable in our house. I just, I learned this early in our marriage, and I have lear- I learned it the hard way, actually. But um, this is an Oreo. It's easy. That's simple. Facts. So you can see that's written right on the package. What I learned is that this is not an Oreo. This is a vanilla cream cookie, okay? This is an Oreo. This is a vanilla cream cookie. It doesn't matter. And, of course, this is nothing. This is nothing. This this doesn't count as a cookie at all. We cannot. And you cannot mix these things up. And we're not saying that these are bad, but they in no way, shape, or form can be called Oreos. Do you understand? Okay. In my home, this is a non-negotiable. Rob said to me, I told him about this and he said, oh, you should have me come and do a taste test. I'll be, and I was like, this is not a fair competition. I know you're going to, you can't eat this and this and think it's the same thing. So it's not, you can have them after. It's fine. And there's a, there's a couple of other things like this in our home. Maybe it's like this in your house too. Um, we, we do buy a lot of no-name stuff, like store brand stuff. Maybe you do too. Inflation, hashtag inflation, right? You've got to do what you've got to do. And there's some really good products out there that are totally fine. But never, like, and I mean never, am I to ever buy off-brand Raisin Brand. Like, <laughs> never. And I was like, I think I bought the President's Choice one once, and, and I was like, this one's actually really good. He's like... What are you talking about? This is not even the same food. Like it was just, like it was just Oreos and Raisin Bran. Like those, you just do not mess with those two things. Wait for it to go on sale. There are just some things that we, uh, we can't and won't and don't compromise on in our lives. Those are silly examples, but maybe, uh, probably, of course, you have other ones in your life. And those things are your prerogative. Those things are your prerogative. But you've probably also figured out in your life that if you don't keep an open mind and learn and grow and listen to new ideas and compromise and mediate, you're probably not going to get very far in life because everybody has their own ideas. I've intentionally tried to teach my kids uh, to know their minds and to think critically about information that they hear. But I also want them to be able to listen to reason and be stretched and those kinds of things. Like These are important skills to have both and. And it's, it's nothing less than kind of uh, than a tightrope to walk. To hold on to your core convictions in your life and also be open to being wrong about something, right? Like this is a tightrope that we all have to navigate every day. What are those things? So how do I know when to bend and how do I know when to stay firm? I don't know what you're going to do about the Oreos in your life, whatever that looks like for you. That's up to your discernment. You can pray about that. And just like allow the Lord to speak to you. But when it comes to your faith, the church in Colossae, in the book of Colossians, is written to them. They were being presented with a choice to compromise. And when their pastor, Epaphras, went to the Apostle Paul and told him of what was going on in that church, Paul swoops in with this letter, and we're going to land in chapter 2 with what he says. And he helps us so much as a modern reader, of course, in their context as well. 
helps them to know exactly where to draw the line. It's like he says, let me tell you what is irrefutable truth. Now, let's hold some other things up to those truths and see if they fit. Spoiler alert, they don't. Okay, this is chapter two, all right? He says this, so remember chapter one, he says, he's talking about the church and he says, I, I want you to know how, how hard I'm contending for you. Oh, that's how chapter two starts. He says, I'm, I'm strenuously contending with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's talking about how he, he loves the church and how he's working so hard for her. So chapter two begins with Paul continuing that thought. He says, I, I, want, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in your faith as you were taught. I know this one. You guys know I know this one. <laughs> Strengthen your faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy that depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you were brought to fullness. Hmm. I don't know why this one's hard for me today, guys. Somebody tell me what the next one is. He's the head. Oh, of course he is. He's the head over every power and authority. Hmm. You guys want to help me with this? Oh. <laughs> I knew this was good. This was like, I did so good last week, and I thought, oh, this, this second week, you know. This second week is going to get me. Yes. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, once you were dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, yeah, this was a good one, you're right. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So here's the point here. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Amen. See to it uh, that, that no one takes you... Mm. Am I right? Yeah, 
Do not let anyone who delights in the, I already said that one. Do not let anyone who delights in uh, false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen and is puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, uh, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why then, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their, uh, their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their um, harsh treatment of the body but lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Thanks for your help, guys. That's the body of Christ growing together. <laughs> There's a lot, uh, and if you weren't here last week, you just know that I've been working on, on Colossians. This is like the end of my, of my project, so thanks for helping me with that. There is a lot that Paul could have said about uh, the Colossians' faith in Christ. He had a lot to say. There was a lot that could be shared about the teaching of Jesus, about the work of the Spirit in their lives. And in other letters to other churches, he does say a lot of those other things. But in a similar way to chapter 1, we just read chapter 2, he tells them more and again about who Jesus is. Here's this list he goes through in the first half, that Jesus has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That Jesus is fully God in bodily form. Can you help me, Greta, with this? Unless it's not there. Unless it's not there. Uh, that Jesus is the head over every power and authority. That Jesus circumcised your heart, making you part of his chosen people. This is a, a really cool one. He circumcised your heart. There's so much to unpack there about from the Old Testament. But circumcision, of course, for God's people was the, the outward sign that they were chosen by God for the Israelites. And he's saying, uh, we don't have to do those outward rituals anymore because God has literally circumcised your heart. There's, a, there's been a marked change in your heart and that you are now part of God's chosen people because of that. He has uh, provided for your forgiveness on the cross, and you are no longer condemned, but you are alive in him. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was pointing towards. Did you hear all that language in there? And so while the Colossians were just getting established in their new faith, some other people had come on the scene and were saying something to them, like this is obviously my interpretation, but kind of what I picked up from scholars and what we're picking up from the word here, saying things to them sort of like, Jesus, yes, I love that for you. Like, kind of like that. We're so glad that you found Jesus. Great. So how is that going? Have you figured out all the tips and tricks to being the best Christian ever? You know, you know all that stuff that you learned from Epaphras that was so good. What a good start you've had. But it is only the beginning. If you really want a spiritual experience that will blow your mind, here is a list of things that you should be doing. And if you don't want to do those things like okay but you'll never qualify for the secret mysteries of the universe that we're finding and you can unlock those things if you do these things but if you don't do these things well I mean well you won't be able to level up spiritually but 
Um, these are the rules. If you don't, you don't have to use them, whatever, fine, no problem. Like that's sort of like the teaching that was coming in. There was like some other level that they were supposed to be unlocking, some other mystery, some other, uh, some other teaching. And they, it was called Gnosticism with a G. Gnosticism is how it's spelled. And this thinking, I mean, honestly, I don't know if there's ever a better use for the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun. Because, uh, because what was happening in that church is absolutely for, for sure happening in our culture today. The, the pop culture of, of, of that day had people looking for spirituality, were looking to better themselves through enlightening experiences, wanted to be in the club of people who were trying to live their best life and be their best selves. Like, doesn't that sound familiar? And so the Gnostics were kind of um, underwhelmed with the simplicity of the gospel. Just to be in Christ and be growing in Christ without needing all these extra things. And they considered themselves uh, like deep and intellectual and informed. And they were the ones who could truly understand the universe. And, 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 and even though it probably couldn't completely be known, they would be, they would be searching after it. So we have the, the culture speaking into the church in Colossae with all of these things. And then alongside of that come the Jews who perhaps were struggling to accept that Gentiles, just non-Jews is what that means, could be part of the family of God. They were God's chosen people, and then all of a sudden the Gentiles are part of the mix, and they're like, okay, okay, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. You guys are welcome. Um, that's kind of, but, but, but it was a struggle. But the struggle was real because they had followed the law for such a long time. And they didn't know how that all fit with their new life in Christ. And so they were popping up and telling them things like their belief in Jesus wasn't valid unless they celebrated certain festivals or um, so eat certain, do, do certain religious rituals, eat certain foods, don't eat other certain foods. And so whether it was from the Gnostics or from the Jews, everything that the, the Colossians were hearing was Jesus plus. So Jesus plus the cultural way or Jesus plus this religious way and on some mix of all of it and they were like, admittedly confused and it sounds kind of deep it sounds like there's you know all of this stuff you should really be doing to be a deep spiritual person but all of that was just a smoke screen it was just adding works to grace which is the oldest trick in the book and so Paul sets up his theme for chapter 2 in verses 6 to 8 take a look at that and just, here's, here's basically what he wants them to hear. He says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So that's how he wants them to be. This is what is important. And then he says, see that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And so over and over again in Colossians, Paul refers to the mystery of the spiritual life. He says, oh yeah, there's like this, the mystery of God. He said it a few times just in these couple of chapters. But the difference is when Paul uses the word mystery, he solves the mystery. He doesn't act like there's a mystery that you have to pursue and you're never going to be able to figure out. He solves the mystery in no uncertain terms. Um, the culture is saying there's a spiritual mystery. Paul says, yeah, there is a spiritual mystery. Here's what it is. And he just lays it out for him. Is the life of faith just a riddle wrapped in an enigma 
wrapped inside of a mystery. No, he says no. Paul says, I want you to fully understand. That's what he says in verses two and three. My goal is that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Right, exactly. In whom are hidden, what's hidden in Christ? All the treasures of, of, of wisdom and knowledge. You can hear how he's speaking directly to the culture. He's saying it's not a mystery. I mean, it's a mystery, but it's been, it's been revealed. So there you go. It's all found in Christ. Want to know the mystery? Want to know the wisdom and the deep truth that really is in the world? It's all found in Jesus. Oh, for sure, there are depths to go. There is much to build into your life in Christ. But it's not hidden from you. It's not a secret that you can never figure out. It's all available to you in Jesus. And this is why Paul wants them to be rooted and built up. A little mixed metaphor there. Rooted and built up. It's like, I want you to go deeper like a tree. I want you to be rooted, but you are still under construction. You're solid. You've got a foundation in Christ, and you're growing stronger, but you still have some place to grow deeper and uh, and growing in, in, in all the things in your life also. So the Colossians were being tempted to add to their faith or change it a few degrees this way or that way in order to align more closely with the thinking of their culture. Maybe it would make them more relevant if they just added a few things to their faith. Maybe it would make them seem more woke. Here's a word for you. Yeah, I said that. Maybe that's what would make them seem like they were more into the culture. Like maybe it would be much a more relevant message, but Paul is just saying to them, I understand what you're up against, but it is dangerous to add anything to the gospel. Be very, very, see to it, see to it that you don't do that. The warning is that to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There's this phrase, elemental spiritual forces of this world, that is a big, big, long, it's a mouthful to say. Um, it, it is kind of like the best way that the English can translate this Greek phrase. Uh, you know what human tradition is, the first part of that sentence, right? Human tradition would be anything man-made rules, things that we just do because we do. Sometimes traditions are great, but he's saying, don't add that to your faith. Like, that's not going to save you. Uh, but So that's what that is. But this elemental spiritual forces of this world, it can mean a lot of things. And commentators wrestle these things down. But there's a very good chance, and most land here, that what he literally means are the uh, demonic spirits that we can give our allegiance to without even recognizing it. We're deceived by it. That's why he's saying, I don't want anyone to be able to deceive you in, in any way, shape, or form. When we don't recognize that there's a spiritual battle for our hearts and our minds, we can be taken captive by a deceptive philosophy of the world because it's so subtle. It's not, it's not waving flags and shining lights and like, do this instead of Jesus. It's like, oh, Jesus is cool and a little bit of this, degree, 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 degree. This is what he's saying. This is what was happening to them. It's what's happening to us. We get it. Don't you love the Colossians? Don't you feel like you're friends with them? I do now a little bit. <laughs> I want, I can't wait to hang out with them in heaven. Oh my gosh, were you guys in Colossae? Let's have tea, like whatever. I don't think that's how heaven's going to work, but that'd be cool, I don't know. 
I'm sure when we're there, we'll be a little bit distracted by how awesome Jesus is, but still. We got to recognize that there is a spiritual battle for our hearts and minds. And that's what's going on here. They, the, these elemental spiritual forces of the world means things that were created, not the creator. That their truth, the, the deceptions of the enemy, the lies of the enemy are hollow. They cannot fill you with anything except for emptiness. And every time you pursue them, because it seems like a good idea, all you find at the end of it is more emptiness, more hollowness. And sometimes what even happens is at the end of a pursuit, which you thought was a spiritual pursuit, you don't find what you're looking for, that deep knowledge of Christ, being in Christ, being hidden with Christ. And what happens to you is you think it was God's fault. Like God wasn't there. No, he wasn't. He never was there. He was always here in Christ with everything that you needed. And so we just have to be so careful with what we are pursuing. And this is the, this is the teaching here. It's true. It's the truth that the culture and like the religious mindset, it just can't fill you with anything but emptiness. But we have to know ourselves to know that we are easily taken by appearances And we are easily taken by high-sounding ideas. We love what's new and what's cool and what's fresh, right? So thinking that the the true message of the gospel, which is what he called it in chapter 1, isn't enough. If you think that it isn't enough, that there is something else you need to be doing in order to qualify for heaven, he says it's like being taken captive or being taken hostage. You're like the hero of an action movie who breaks free from his captors and is running away and then gets captured again. It's like, don't choose that path. That's a dumb plot line. Like, don't do that. Don't choose that. See to it that no one can do that to you. It's your choice. The Colossians, it sounds like we're in danger of being deflated in their faith because of all of these messages that they were receiving as new Christians. And the more I think about that church in Colossae, the more I feel that confusion with them as I consider my own culture. They're like, Pastor Epaphras said all of these things to us about Jesus and about our faith in Jesus. But now I'm hearing that I need secret knowledge and I have to keep from doing these things while I have to observe all of these other things. And is this what I signed up for? Is this really what I signed up for? This is a lot. And Paul counters and says, no, you, you know, no. You have all the completeness that you need in Christ. You don't have to look anywhere else for it. You need to just continue to be rooted and built up in him and him alone. Everything dwells in Christ. This is the message over and over and over and over again in Colossians. There is nothing we can do or need to do or achieve for ourselves. Jesus won it all. He triumphed over all of it on the cross, right? So that's already been done for you. You can't do that for yourself. Nothing will make you more a part of the church, freer from sin, or have more secure hope for eternity than the true message of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. People were using external measures, what you eat and drink, and what holidays you observe, to decide if you were really a Christian. This is nonsense, Paul says. There's exclamation points uh, in this. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's nonsense, is basically what he's saying. People are using all of this to decide what your faith was truly like, these external measures. And he says, no, absolutely not. The test of whether or not you are in Christ is whether or not your heart has been circumcised. 
in modern, I'm sure they were very glad, these Gentile Christians, that he said, your heart must be circumcised as adult Christians. Timothy didn't have this. You guys might know that. There was, this was such a controversy between the religious Jews who had come to Christ and do, do, does circumcision still need to be practiced in order for you? Like, there was so much of this going on in the early church, and Paul is so clear. Circumcision needs to happen in your heart. There needs to be a marked difference in your life because of Christ. And that's what we're looking for, not any other external measures. You've got to be transformed by Jesus, be marked as his. It's like saying this. You see these Oreos again? Has anybody, like, been staring at them and feeling hungry? It's like saying um, all of these rules that they were trying to implement in order to make their faith real or better or whatever they were doing. It's like saying, you see these Oreos? Oreos are, by the way, this might be an elemental spiritual force of the world because when you eat one and then you look down again, at the, the whole row is gone and you don't know what happened. Does this happen to anybody else? Okay. You see these Oreos and these vanilla cream cookies, which are different. I don't want you, this, it's like saying this, I don't want you to touch them. They're bad for you. And literally, we know they are bad for you, okay? Uh, they're bad for you. Do not touch them. And um, religion, it literally, it means, like, it comes from the root of the word to bind up. So religion is literally saying, like, I'm going to bind my hands and say, I will not touch those Oreos. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. And if I do not eat the Oreos, I will be a better Christian. That's what essentially what it is. And I will tie my hands behind my back and force myself to not do the thing that I know is not good for me. And this is what I will do. I will will myself to do it. I will hold my hands behind my back. But here's what he says at the end of chapter 2. That these rules that people are putting in place, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So what that means is that tying your hands behind your back and saying, don't do that, is not effective at all. It doesn't work because it doesn't change your sinful flesh. It tries to bind it up. And we don't need rules to change what we eat, but we need power to change what we crave. So instead of saying, um, uh, I'm just like, I, I, all I can think about is the Oreos and I'm not going to touch the Oreos. And I'm not going to, it's like saying, um, have you ever been on a diet like this where you stop eating junk food or sugar or carbs or whatever, and the first couple of weeks are the worst, and then, and then you start to crave other things? As you start to walk in a new way, as you start to feed your body with different things, your body says, thank you. I, I feel so much better now. It's sort of like that. It's like you have to change what you crave. And the way to do that is to be transformed by Christ. Not to just put a million rules in your life so you never do anything bad again. It's not going to work. This is what he's saying here. You can't just add rules and assume that your sensual indulgences are just going to go away. You have to be transformed. You have to be in Christ and living in him. We have this power in us to do this already by the resurrection of Christ. The same Christ that raised, or the same power that raised Christ from the dead, right? This is incredible, lives in us. So we change because we are made new, not because we've been told to change. 
We're, we change because we want to do new things. We want to have new habits. We don't want to eat the Oreos because we want a new life in Christ because what he is and who he is and, and what he's offering is so much better than the junk that I have been pursuing in my life. And that changes. That, that's a transformation that's being talked about here. We change because we are made new, because we are rooted in Jesus, because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not a shadow of things. Rules are a shadow of things. But this is the transformation is the reality. When you follow rules in order to make your Christian life seem legitimate, you have two options. Either you do a great job at it and you're the best rule follower ever. Some of you are great rule followers. You're just built like that. You love a good rule book. What are the rules? But the problem is if, if that's your Christian life, you get popped up and proud. Look how good I am at being a Christian. I'm the best Christian. Yeah. Yeah. You know that's not good. <laughs> but what happens to you if, if you have a rules-based Jesus plus Christianity and you fail at it? You just guilt and shame. That's just guilt and shame. So your options are guilt and shame or puffed up and prideful if you do it like this. And what Paul is saying, it's like Jesus, not Jesus plus anything else. In this second chapter, there's a warning for the Colossians, there's a warning for us, and I've called this message how not to follow Jesus for this reason. He says, we have to, uh, we have to be on our guard against some things. Anything that judges and disqualifies others according to human measures, not stuff that we find in Scripture. Anything, we guard against anything that substitutes false battles, like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's a battle you're going to fight. You're going you're gonna to focus on what you're not going to do. You're going to focus on the rules. And he says, no, no, I want you to focus on the real struggle with sin, which is submitting and surrendering your life to Christ, dying to your old self, making it obedient to Christ and following him, not being distracted by a bunch of rules that you're never going to be able to follow. So be, be careful about that. He says, be on your guard against anything that elevates your feelings over the truth of Christ's work in you. Your emotions were, are beautiful and they were made by the Lord, but they are not your Lord and master. The truth of the word is your Lord and master. Jesus is your Lord and master. So you have to be on your guard. That it's not about how you feel. It's about what you know is true. And you also have to be on your guard against anything that places more importance on divine intermediaries. Like a, you're pursuing a spiritual experience. And in this case, the worship of angels. Which we don't really know what was going on there. But somebody was pursuing something weird. Which is going on. This, like, this is the antidote to weird Christianity right here. Be on your guard against it. Because it's not Jesus. Anything that gets between you and Jesus is not okay. And we are on our guard against anything that cuts people off from Christ, who is the head. Or cuts, them off, cut, cuts off Christ's people, the body. Anything that gets in the way of that relationship, we have to say, where is that in the scripture and how is it helping us pursue Christ? And if it's not, these are merely human commands and teachings. These are not things that are adding value to our faith. We just have to be on our guard, church. When you lose sight of Jesus, you end up in a, uh, back in a, a rule-based religion. Paul says, no, you don't have to go there. 
Don't listen to the culture. Don't listen to uh, that religious group who is trying to figure things out in, the, in an incorrect way. You do not need to add to your faith. You need to know Christ, and you need to grow up in maturity. Paul says that a lot in his letters, so I'll just say it like that. We need to grow up, grow deep, and grow up, and Christ, and Christ alone. You are not made whole by searching within, and you are not made whole by trying to find yourself. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So don't restrain or tie your flesh down and say, okay, I'm, gonna do, I'm not going to do these things. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Instead of that, the call here is, and, and this was the, the, the thing about baptism, about circumcision and baptism, you let those things that need to die, die on the cross with Christ. You say, all of those things, that, that flesh, that, the things that are, are drawing me away, I'm going to let them die on the cross with Jesus and live a new life in him. And we're going to deal with that in chapter 3, such, so much beautiful stuff in chapter 3. So we have to ask ourselves, so here's our, here's our um, self-reflection from Colossians 2. Is there anything in our lives that we are substituting for growing and maturing in our faith? Anything. Is there any, are we putting any rules in place that have the appearance of wisdom but are actually keeping us from surrendering to Christ? They're, they're, these rules are, are actually keeping us from trusting him. We're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in our own rules to transform our lives. Are we changing what we crave or are we just trying to tie down our sensual indulgences? We need to be transformed. Are we substituting anything for the disciplines that will lead to our maturity and transformation in him? Are we putting anything in, in place of that? I've thought about this a lot uh, because I know that's the question that comes out of, the application question comes out of chapter 2 and it, i got to tell you it's hard to pin down. It's going to be so individual in each one of our lives. Each one of us have different things that we crave. We have different things that to this point in our lives have been non-negotiable. There's different voices speaking to us. Each of us are in different contexts and so this is going to be different for each one of us. So what is it for you? Is there something in your life that is, that is being used as a substitute for you growing and maturing in your faith? I want you to come. I thought of some examples. Maybe, maybe they're irrelevant to you. Maybe they're not. But I, I suspect the Lord might just say what he needs to say to you instead. But I've talked about this before. But sometimes we, we substitute talking about praying instead of praying. That's subtle. When you tell somebody that you need prayer, but you haven't actually gone to prayer, that's subtle, you guys, but that's, that's kind of, that's a substitution for just going to Christ. Comparing ourselves to others who are more or less spiritual than us in our view, like we know. Uh, seeing somebody and thinking, well, at least I'm not as bad as that. Or seeing somebody and thinking, well, I can never be as spiritual as them. Comparing spiritual gifts to somebody else. All of that stuff is just so, it's just, it's just distraction from Christ and where he has you in his body. Sometimes we do this by uh, trying to control every aspect of our lives. Maybe it's not someone else telling you the rules, the religious rules. You have just created your whole set of own rules and you're trying to follow them every day. You're trying to control everything and try to do everything perfectly 
And Jesus is saying, I, I, I want you to be holy, but I want you to do it in me, not by just having to control. Let me control. Trust, trust me. Trust me with your life. Trust that I'm going to show you what's next. Trust me that I'm going to lead you. Trust me that I'm going to speak. Here's another one I thought about. Sometimes we substitute reading books about the word instead of reading the word or devotionals or whatever. Sometimes we choose rituals in our faith instead of relationship. We just do things that we know to do, which can sometimes be disciplines, but there's a line where you cross where you have forgotten to pursue the one that you're doing the disciplines to get to know, you know? Subtle, it's so subtle, church, it's subtle. Maybe there's just insecurity in your life about your faith. You don't share your faith. You don't talk about Jesus in your life because you're afraid of the question that you might get asked that you might not be able to answer. There's just a lot of insecurity and it's become the thing that distracts you from just trusting Jesus and asking him to use you. Just subtle things. So I've asked the team to, to close this morning with um, this song. It's a little bit, it's a few years old. It simply just says, let it be Jesus. The first name that I call. Let it be Jesus, the song inside the storm. There will never be another Jesus, there is no other. Because for me, to live is Christ. So God, I breathe your name above everything. Let it be Jesus. So you can stay seated, sing along if you know the song and you would like to, like to pray it out. Um, but could we use this moment and just invite the Holy Spirit to say what he wants to say to each one of us individually? These are some ideas, but is there anything we are substituting? Any cultural message, any religious message, anything we are substituting for actually ourselves trusting and pursuing Jesus. So just hear that call from the word. Let's just hear this song as a prayer. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through that and then we'll pray together.